Hello, everyone, and welcome to Grace. It's so great to have you join us in worship. As we continue in this series about Grace's philosophy of ministry, I want to talk today about this idea of training up others. This is one of those mindsets, those approaches to ministry that really sets grace apart from so many churches across the nation. Now, to set the context, please listen as I read a scenario from a book by Carl George. The book is called How to Break Growth Barriers. It's, it's a book that I've read on and off for many years now. I first saw it in the early 90s. And this scenario I'm going to read is, is contained on a couple of pages, so it'll take a few minutes and at the end of it, I want you to listen carefully because at the end of it, I want to ask you a question that's rather personal. Carl George writes, Go with me to a country just hit by a devastating earthquake where 45,000 people are injured or dead. Two medical teams, each headed by a doctor, are being airlifted to the heart of the disaster area. The physician leading the first crew steps out of the helicopter and is immediately overwhelmed by all the carnage he sees. There, barely 10 paces away, workers are pulling a mangled living body from under the rubble. Moved by compassion, the doctor rushes over and calculates the personnel, equipment, and facilities needed to help this victim. He assigns half his medical team and half their supplies to work on this one person. A handful of survivors, sensing the availability of help, bring the physician another case. This victim is in even worse condition. The doctor assigns the rest of his medical team and resources to care for this person. Now the doctor faces a worse dilemma than when his helicopter touched down. He would like to treat 44,998 more people but has already expended all his resources on the first two bodies presented to him. The only solution, he decides, is to make himself even more available. He resolves that he and his staff will push themselves even harder. They will be on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week, to treat as many individuals as possible. Unfortunately, a few weeks later, this well-intentioned medic is forced to return home. His body has not kept pace with his desire to help. With his resistance lowered, he has caught one of the diseases rampant in the disaster area. The care he and his team have provided must come to a standstill until a replacement arrives. Meanwhile, what is the second medical team doing? Their preliminary assessment, likewise, takes only a matter of moments. They, too, are deeply shocked and moved with compassion toward the massive death and pain evident in every direction. They see widespread malnutrition, open wounds, and other horrible conditions. People are suffering and dying before their eyes. The physician heading this second unit quickly concludes that her small group by itself is inadequate. So, instead of scooping up the first person in sight and immediately beginning treatment, 
This doctor opts for a different plan. She tries to calculate a strategy that will touch a maximum number of people in the least amount of time using the scarce resources available. The doctor announces to her team, let's train some people as life support engineers. One group will make sure safe drinking water is available. Another will deal with shelter issues. Another with food. Yet another group will work on waste control and public health by repairing the citywide sewer system to take the fecal matter off the streets before it mixes into the water supply or spreads into the homes. This relief and preventative care multiplied throughout the disaster area will retard the growth of infection and allow the medical intervention to have a greater impact. Having mapped out a program to provide the essentials of survival and it reduce infectious agents, the doctor next addresses issues of proper nutrition and other preventable forms of need. In the meantime, her medical team begins training the healthier survivors to serve as health officers. Their focus is on remedial and interventionary care, starting with the people who, if treated, have a good prognosis for recovery. Everyone in the disaster area is keenly aware that a very practical reason exists for giving priority to those who are getting well. The need is of such tremendous proportions that every additional able-bodied worker can help make a significant difference. And remember, I told you I was going to ask you a question. Here's my question to you. Having heard these two different scenarios, which team would you choose? Now, I'm going to stop reading right there, but I wonder which team you would rather be a part of. At first glance, I believe most people would say that that first team appeared more loving and caring. But you know what? The truth is, both teams had equally strong feelings of love and compassion. They differed. They differed only in how they showed their love and compassion. And here's the clear truth of the matter. The second team proved to have a much more positive and lasting impact. That's the truth. The second team made more of an impact. They had more positive, lasting impact because they made the strategic choice to train up others. That's the approach Jesus took, and that's the approach he's called us to take as his leaders. What does it take? What does it take to be a church that trains up others? I want to tell you, folks, it requires humility. It requires humility. You have to have enough humility to recognize and admit that the crisis in this world is too great for us. Like that second medical team in the story, you have to acknowledge The field of need is just too big for us. We have to humbly admit, no matter how hard I work, no matter how much I make myself available and wear myself out, 
The impact I make will only be a fraction of what it could be, of what it could be if, if I made the strategic choice to train up others. Then, if I train up others, then the impact is multiplied. The Bible teaches us that a healthy, dynamic local church is a place where that happens. Others are trained up and released into ministry. By the way, the book of Ephesians is a treasure trove of instruction about what the church is and how it's supposed to function as it goes about doing ministry. But today, I want to look at only a brief section from chapter 4 in the book of Ephesians. Let's start with verse 11. If you have your Bible open there, Ephesians chapter 4, starting verse 11, or however you, wherever you're reading Scripture from today. It was he who gave some to be apostles. Now, who were the, the apostles? The apostles were those 12 men who were privileged enough to be eyewitnesses of the resurrection and were the overseers of the original church. He gave some, it goes on to say, he gave some to be prophets. Now, who, who were the prophets? Those were the people who proclaimed, both the foretellers and the foretellers. They not only had insight into the future, but they were powerful preachers of God's truth. Those are the prophets. It says he gave some to be evangelists. Now, who are the evangelists? Those are the people who just have a God-given spiritual knack. It's a spiritual gift, actually, of convincing unbelievers of the truth of the gospel, okay? It says he gave some to be pastors and teachers. Who are those? Those are the people with an ability to study and learn and present truth in an effective way, but also to shepherd and to come alongside people and lead the flock. These people can communicate information in an interesting and informative way. That's the kind of people the Bible says God has put in the church to help lead. Now, it's clear that not every leader and not every disciple is wired the same way. Would you agree? We have different gifts, so it's important that we identify our talents and focus on the area where we're most gifted. But if God has called you to a church, I hope you're listening right now. If God has called you into church, if he saved you, there may be a season in your life where he's called you to be in a specific local church where he wants you to just rest and heal up, so to speak, from some wound or trauma in your life. And that's a good thing. You take the time to heal up and get ready. But are you still listening? If God has called you to a specific local church, he wants you to eventually get involved in meaningful ways in that church. When I was in my mid-20s, I lived in Amsterdam in the Netherlands for a period of time, for over a year. And one day, several of us on staff went, we were working on an international uh, conference that we were putting on, 
And several of us went on a boat trip. I'll never forget. It was a beautiful day. And this wasn't the kind of excursion where, you know, you, know, you, you paid f- uh, for tickets and so you kind of expected to be pampered and it was kind of purely a pleasure cruise, if you will. No, this boat trip we went on, uh, the boat was owned by a friend of one of the staff and he was going to take us on a tour around some of the canals of Amsterdam. We were going to go across the harbor there, we we're going to tour all around And he was doing it purely out of the kindness of his heart and as a favor to the staff. Now, like most Dutch people, he spoke perfect English. (laughs) And he he was honored that we were on his boat, some about 12 of us that day from the local Billy Graham staff. We were sitting around getting ready to enjoy our, our pleasant ride on the boat. But we noticed that our captain, the owner of the boat, was working like a madman. I mean, he was working at a frenetic pace to get this boat ready to launch. Sweat, I'll never forget it. Sweat was literally pouring off his face while we were sitting around, kind of bored, watching him work, doing nothing. We were doing nothing but sitting. Finally, (laughs) we started feeling a little guilty And we said to the captain, hey, uh, man, is there anything we can do to help? But he said no. He was unwilling for some reason to share the work. Maybe he thought we would mess it up. (laughs) Maybe he thought we'd get hurt or something. I I don't know. But I kid you not, he wouldn't give us anything to do. He wouldn't let us lift a finger. We would have felt better We really would if we could help in some way. But he said, no, you just sit back, he said, and enjoy. And so for two hours, the captain did all the work while 12 young, able-bodied people sat around enjoying ourselves, although I must admit some of us felt a bit guilty. Now, friends, I I, want to tell you that across America, there are literally tens of thousands of churches where the pastor tries to operate like that boat captain. And it's also kind of like that doctor, you remember, who led the first medical team in the story we started with today? The pastor does everything while able-bodied, wonderfully gifted people sit and faithfully warm the pews but do nothing else. Usually those churches are quite small, anywhere from uh, 20 to maybe 120 people. But the pastor still tries to fulfill all of these roles. For instance, he is the prophet. He preaches every service. He's the evangelist. He calls on every visitor in the home and has every evangelistic conversation about matters of faith. He does all the marital counseling, attends family functions, tries to meet family needs. Often these pastors also teach Sunday school classes and Wednesday night Bible studies. Now folks, believe it or not, that is the role that pastors in most small churches try to fulfill. Oh, I say it kindly. I say it kindly, but that is not the way God designed the church 
to function. God wants all hands on deck. The pastor and leaders are to be involved mostly, that is their, their job description is mostly, guess what? To train up others and help them, help them get involved. And since everyone has a role to play, churches that function like this are often very, very exciting. The catalytic leaders of churches like this, who train up others, encourage every member to ask themselves at least three basic things. Questions about passion, about gifting, and about personality. Here's what I mean. What do you love to do? What are you gifted to do? And how do you relate to others when you're doing it? Those are wonderful questions, and they're very important. Have you ever asked yourself those three questions? By the way, when you find something to do in the church or out there in the world where all three, all three of those areas flow together into one mighty stream of effectiveness, listen, you are going to be a very fulfilled person and a very effective person, I might say, in God's kingdom work. When you're working in an area that you don't love and you're not gifted for and it doesn't fit your personality, you're likely to burn out pretty quickly. You're likely to feel pretty miserable, to be honest. For example, I love to preach and teach. I really do. And I'm generally energized by that. So after preaching or teaching a few times a week, I may be physically tired, but I'm very emotionally and spiritually energized and excited. In contrast, if I had to do five straight marital counseling sessions, the way some counselors do, I would be an emotional basket case. You'd find me in a corner in a fetal position, folks. That drains the life out of me. I can do it, but it just wears me out. Any effective leader will focus the majority of his or her time in the area of their giftedness and passion. Now, Ephesians chapter 4, that's where we're looking today, verse 12, goes on to say that God gave these leadership gifts to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Do you hear that? A parent spoon feeds an infant. But listen, if a child is 12 years old and they're still being spoon fed, something is drastically wrong with that picture. The parent is supposed to train that child to hold that spoon and eventually to feed himself and eventually to find the food and cook it himself, and eventually to teach others how to feed themselves. When you're a spiritual infant, you may need to be spiritually spoon-fed from the Bible. That's okay. That's appropriate if you're a brand new follower of Jesus. But God's goal for you and our goal for you is that eventually you would mature in such a way so that you can not only feed yourself but also help feed others and then train others 
how to train others. Do you see that progression that I'm talking about there? The training never stops. It goes on and on and on. Consider what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He said, the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. So I hope you're getting the essence of this message today. I really do. We must envision the church in a biblical way as a body where everyone, and I truly mean everyone, is being trained toward maturity and everyone is learning how to minister to others according to their gifting, passions, and personality. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of. That's the kind of church God envisions in his word. That's the kind of church we want grace to be. That's why scripture admonishes us, love one another, encourage one another, pray for one another, instruct one another, accept one another, serve one another, give hospitality to one another, spur one another on to love and good deeds, be devoted to one another, and on and on and on it goes. God is calling you, friend, I'm talking to you, to be actively involved in those one another's. Are you involved? Have you ever understood that God has a role for you to play in his church? On December the 7th, 1941, when Pearl Harbor was bombed, President Roosevelt declared war. Do you know what happened the very next day? The next day, thousands of young men went directly to the draft board and volunteered. They volunteered for the service. They wanted to defend their country and do battle against the enemy. Women went to work in factories to build planes and ships and to arm our forces overseas. It seems that everyone just about wanted to get involved. Now let me talk to you personally. Let me talk to your heart right now. Friend, when you see the satanic attack on biblical values going on, when you see the traditional family being ambushed in our culture, when you see the Judeo-Christian worldview being mocked and utterly dismissed and marginalized, when you see the oppression of every kind abounding in our land, when you see millions of people moving toward a hopeless eternity, I gotta ask you, when you see all that, can you sit back passively? Weak after endless week and not lift a finger, not get involved? As a follower of Jesus, is there not a passion in your soul to make a difference? That involvement will sometimes sound like, hey, I'm gonna start a new ministry and lead it. Bravo. Sometimes it will sound like that. Other times it may sound like this. I'm going to link my life with one of our grace and action partners in the area, and I'm going to serve for a few hours a week. At other times it'll sound like this. Hey, I'm going to lead a small group of people as we do life together and look into God's word for growth. Or it may sound like this. Hey, I, I'm going to ask my <coughs> campus pastor or staff person, how can I serve at grace and use my gifts for God? Scripture teaches 
that when we do that, in other words, when leaders are training up others to use their gifts in service, some awesome things begin to happen. Let me read to you what I mean by that. I'm now in verse 13 of Ephesians chapter 4. It says here, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. Are you catching those words? Unity, maturity, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Listen now. It says when we're all getting involved, when we're all doing what God's called and gifted us to do, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, what's going to happen when we all begin to use our gifts? Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Did you, did you catch that? God's goal for you, God's goal for me is maturity. Verse 14 says we will no longer be infants. Verse, verse 15 says we will grow up. Verse 16 right below it says that that the body grows and builds itself up in love. I, I, hope, I hope you're hearing that loud and clear from God's heart. God's basic goal for the church is that we grow up, that we grow up, that we mature and become all he intended us to be. And I want you to know we're more committed to that goal at Grace than we've ever been. We don't want to remain in spiritual infancy. We don't want to be toddlers or adolescents. We want to grow into full maturity. When we talk about better disciples, and I hope you are hearing us talk about that a lot, that's what we mean by that. We want every true Christian to grow into maturity. Now, friends, i got to tell you from my heart, by almost any standards, Grace Fellowship has a glorious past. I think most of you would agree with that. I mean, what God has done in and through this church is truly extraordinary. What a glorious past we have by God's grace. But again, just from my heart, just straight from my gut, my soul today, I want you to hear this as I close. We've got a glorious past but our eyes are not on the past. Our eyes are on the road ahead. Many changes have happened through these years. Some have been painful. Some have been exhilarating. And just recently, the COVID-19 pandemic has brought even more change that we're acclimating to. But as we look toward regathering on September the 13th, and that's the day we're gonna regather and come back together on September the 13th, we've never been more excited about the future. And all God has in store, hallelujah, he's got a great future. 
for each and every one of us. He is truly willing to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. And we want you, we want you, every one of you, to be a part of that. So let's pray about that together as we close. Father, thank you for every person with ears to hear this message straight from your heart, straight from your word. Thank you for the incredible, extraordinary, and very exciting future you have not only for this church as a whole, but for each individual who's willing to jump on board and be a part of your plan. I pray that folks would be asking that question, Lord, how have you designed me? I want to get involved and make a difference by your grace in the way you've designed me to. And I pray, Lord, that as they do, they'd start living life with a capital L. There'd be a spring in their step and a joy in their soul and a peace in their heart that would be remarkable. And may they never be the same as they begin to live life with a capital L. In Jesus' name, amen.